Well, I've been stuck in a rut for the last, oh, 24 years at Omaha Bible Church and maybe teaching the Bible for the last 30 years. And my rut is, usually I try to have a sermon introduction, and then again and again, every single sermon ever, I say, please open your Bibles to, or turn your Bible on now. So what would you think if this morning I said, if your Bible's open, I'd like you to close it. What would you think if I said, if your Bible's on, I'd like you to turn it off? Hopefully you'd think, what have you done with Pat Abendroth? What have you done with our pastor? That's not how he operates. He's a Bible teacher. He, he always says that, and indeed I always do. Well, for effect, if your Bible's open, I'd like you to close it. And if your Bible's turned on, I'd like you to turn it off. Hmm, plot thickens. Should I leave now, you're thinking? That's what I'd be thinking. Well, this morning, I ask you to begin by closing your Bible or turning it off because what we're going to talk about, chronologically speaking, is not in the Bible because it predates Genesis 1. So unless you have the book of pre-Genesis in your Bible, which I think is true in comic books, but it's not true in real life, what we're going to talk about today predates Genesis And yet, it's thoroughly biblical. So yes, you can open your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter (sighs) 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, we have this discussion of something that happens before Genesis 1. So when it comes to history, it predates, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Bible does talk about pre-Genesis in lots of places. Jesus talks about it, and it's talked about in Ephesians 1 in a great way, and I can't wait for us to talk about it. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we are going to talk about something that theologians call, because they like Latin, like R.C. Sproul, uh, they call it the pactum salutis. Today, we're going to talk about the pactum salutis, and you might be thinking, the pactum salutis? Well, we're going to define it. In fact, here's what we're going to do. We are going to talk about what it is, the pactum salutis. We're going to talk about where it's taught in the Bible, like in Ephesians 1. And we're going to talk about why it matters. Okay, so what it is, where it's in the Bible, to be found in the Bible, and why it matters. Because it matters extraordinarily to us. Why aren't we in Acts today? Well... Because last week I was gone, I was in New York City speaking at a conference, and they asked me to speak on the Pactum Salutis. And so um, I had enough fun studying and preparing and all that, and I thought, I'll preach this at Omaha Bible Church. So today you get the leftovers, sorry. It's not leftovers, it'll be better. Um, oftentimes what I'll do is do it beforehand at Omaha Bible Church and then do it at a conference, but it didn't work out that way this time. So I had a great time with my brother, Mike, and many of you know Mike because he's been here over the years. If you don't know him, you'll probably get to know him eventually. Uh, he's a pastor in Massachusetts. Uh, we're very close theologically. Uh, we're very close as brothers. So he was speaking at the conference in New York City, and I was as well. And so had a great time with him. And some of you know that about a year ago, he was supposed to speak here in our October conference, and the doctors didn't think he was ever going to go home from the hospital. So... He's doing well. So a lot of you prayed for him. Thank you for praying for my brother. Um, Just doing wonderfully. Um, So on the first day, what we did is he drove, I'm telling you more than you want to know. 
Anyway, I went back to Massachusetts with him. And uh, one day we rode 20 miles on a bicycle and then we did 50 some miles. So he's doing just fine. Um, it's cool. Ride from Massachusetts to New Hampshire. It sounds like a big deal. It was only 50 miles, but still makes you feel cool. Good photo op. Okay. The Pactum Salutis. What is the Pactum Salutis that happens before Genesis chronologically? What is it? Well, it's the most splendid reality you're ever going to think about ever, but let's just go ahead and start with the Pactum Salutis. Salutis, salvation, redemption. So we're talking about salvation and redemption. We're, we're talking about the Salutis in Latin. And then we're talking about the Pactum. That means covenant. Think pact. Think agreement. We, it carries into English a little bit. So the covenant of redemption, the pact of redemption, the plan or decree of salvation, using a lot of synonyms. A covenant is a formal agreement. Uh, the word covenant is used a ton in the Bible. And even when it's not used as the word, the concept is there. So we have this formal agreement to save, to redeem. And we learn about it, we will in just a little while in Ephesians, we see it's the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world, purpose, decree, covenant to redeem sinners in time, to have the Son come to earth, right? To become one of us and to live a sinless life and to die a sinful death, though he never sinned and to be raised from the dead because he's righteous. And then for the Holy Spirit to come and to, uh, to apply it to our lives, if you will, and, and bring about the new birth, regeneration and apply, uh, to bring faith in our lives. And, and theologians call this the pactum salutis, the plan of redemption. Here's a, here's a good, um, formal quotation from my friend, David Van Drunen. He's spoken here a couple of times. Uh, he says this in his book, Divine Covenants and Moral Order. The covenant of redemption describes an eternal intra-Trinitarian. Ooh, right? Sounds good. Intra-Trinitarian covenant by which the divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, counseled together to ordain or decree the plan of salvation to be accomplished in the coming of the Son and the sending of the Spirit. And I'll repeat that in a little while after we look at the biblical data. The intra-Trinitarian purpose, plan, covenant to save, to redeem. Now, some of you think, well, I know David Van Drunen, and he's Presbyterian. Well, here's a Baptist quote in case you need to have all your T's crossed. Matthew Barrett, who is also a friend and has been here before, he says the covenant of redemption is between the persons of the Trinity. In other words, it is intra-Trinitarian. And since our triune God is timelessly eternal, so too must be the covenant of redemption. And I'll stop with the quotations for now at least. Remember, it was a lecture, but this is going to be a sermon. Uh, but maybe I heard someone called a, a lerman. Uh, learning and a sermon together. But I think all sermons should be where you're learning. But this might be a little bit more of a lerman um, because of some quotations. You see, this is a pretty interesting topic already. That something happened before the creation of the world? That the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit predestined elect sinners to be saved? Yeah, that's the verbiage of Ephesians chapter 1. It is indeed extraordinary to know something about the eternal counsel of God. Wow, is what I say when I think about, oh, the pactum salutis. Don't have to ask me twice to talk about that in New York City or Omaha. 
Can we move on? Biblical data. You've got your Bibles open. Good job. I like that. Where is it taught in the Bible? Where is it taught in the Bible? Well, if you just do a word search in a Bible program, pactum, how do you spell that again? Salutis. Zero hits. Maybe I didn't spell it right. Maybe I need a different translation. No, you can do, you can do it all day long and you'll never find it because it's just a label to capture the idea. Okay. So what we don't believe as Christians is sola word searcha. Okay. That's not how mature Christians do theology. Okay. Just like if you type in Trinity, you're not, you're, you're not going to get any hits. It's a label. It's a, it's a, it captures the big idea. Um, let's not do solo word searcha. We're going to be, people do that, but they, they tend to end up being heretics, false teachers. There are lots of things in the Bible that are there by concept, but we have shorthand kinds of labels to kind of cut to the chase. Theologians talk, uh, uh in terms of the Trinity, or we speak in terms of, um, the hypostatic union. I had to look at my notes. I forgot. The hypostatic union? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a label for Jesus is God, and he's also what? Man. And if you just want to use a label in front of people who, that are, are in the know of the vocabulary, you can say that. Hypostatic union. Oh, yeah, of course. Shorthand for he is God, truly God, and he's truly a human being, both at the same time, unlike anyone else. So. Ephesians 1 is the deep end of the pactum salutis pool. So we're going to dive right in. And as we work our way through Ephesians 1, be thinking of the who, be thinking of the what, be thinking of the when, be thinking of the where, be thinking of the why. Verse 2, there we have it. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father, there we go, of the Lord Jesus Christ. There we go, Father and Son, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. That's decretive talk. Verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption Covenant of redemption, pactum salutis. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. If you think, man, you're sure reading fast. Actually, in the Greek text, it's one run-on sentence. I'm not reading it fast enough. Right? It's just so extraordinary, so amazing. It's the Apostle Paul under inspiration is falling over himself. You just can't get it out fast enough. But I had to come up for breath. So verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, all three members of the triune Godhead, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I hate to do it, but for the sake of time, and we're doing the flyover version, I'm going to drop down to verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. 
All of that is part of this intra-Trinitarian purpose, decree, covenant before the foundation of the world. Then it says, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. 21 says, far above all rule, authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What a text. No, what a great reality. What a great reality. No wonder he calls it this a mystery that we are ushered into the, to the council, the, the, the eternal council of God to know why everything on earth that happens happens. Ephesians one, deep into the pactum pool. Who? The triune God. What? Redemption. Sure redemption according to, to divine decree. When? Before the foundation of the world to be accomplished in time at the right time in the fullness of time it says affecting not only this age but also he says the one to come. Where? In the heavenly places but also affecting those on earth and beyond. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace ultimately and for our good semi-ultimately. How? By the choosing of the Father, the redeeming work of the Son, and the applying by the Holy Spirit, all actually working together in reality. Isn't it good? It's beyond good. It's frighteningly good for some. So with just that data, where is it taught in the Bible? Well, we're going to look at other passages, but if we only look at that passage, if I come back to that textbook definition from Dave Van Drunen, I say, therefore, in fact, in Ephesians 1, we find the eternal intra-Trinitarian covenant by which the divine persons counseled together to ordain the plan of salvation to be accomplished in the coming of the Son and the sending of the Spirit. Looks like a covenant. Formal agreement. It wasn't whimsical. It wasn't, oh, well, let's just do this, you know, on a whim. Looks like a covenant. Sounds like a covenant. If it could smell, it would smell like a covenant. I think we would be out of our minds to say it's not one. Well, let's close and no, I'm not going to do it. We, we could, right? We could just be done. And some of you are saying, please. <laughs> I'm still trying to decide if this is going to be one parter or two parter. So pray for me. Let's look at some other passages. Let's look at Luke 22. Let's also look at John's gospel. It's all over John's gospel. Um, Psalm 110, Hebrews chapter 7, Matthew 22, Isaiah 53. Uh, it, it's one of those things that I like to tell people, once you see it, what? You can't unsee it. Once you see it, you're like, oh yeah, it's all over the place. Now, the Luke 22 one is, um, oh, kind of historical, but kind of a point of interest that, that I think you might find interesting. Um, Theodore Beza is famous in church history because he came after Calvin uh, in Geneva, mentored by Calvin. But Theodore Beza is also known uh, for his commitment to the Greek text. Okay, so Beza uh, coming after the uh, in light of the Reformation. Okay, we've learned a lot of things from the medievals. We've learned a lot of things from the Latin Vulgate, uh, but the Bible didn't. The New Testament didn't originally come to us in Latin. Uh, Latin is a good scholarly language. It actually has a good role in the world. But the Bible originally, the New Testament was in Greek, and so let's let's see if we can. Uh, 
blow the dust off our Greek texts, and Beza is known for doing this. And one thing that Beza highlighted in going back to the original text uh, is in Luke chapter 22, verse 29, something rather interesting. In Luke 22, 29, Jesus says, I assign, that's going to be the important word, I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom. Assign and assign, two times. And Beza made the observation first, and now we've been making it ever since, uh, that the Greek word that's used for assign, used twice, diatithemi, you don't need to know that to go to heaven, um, diatithemi is used, and when you look at that word in other contexts, again and again and again, it's in covenantal contexts. Like in Acts 3, 25, Hebrews 8, 10, Hebrews 10, 16. And so you could translate it, a sign is fine, I'm reading from the ESV, um, but you could translate it covenant, formal decree, agreement, pact. And so the idea would be something like this. I'm, I'm going to offer my interpretation, translation in light of that. I, Jesus says to his disciples, I covenantally decree to you a kingdom as my father covenantally decreed to me a kingdom. It's really strong. In other words, is the idea. He is the Messiah by covenantal decree. And this kingdom is likewise the believer's kingdom by covenantal decree. It's meant to be well, a moment for us if we're disciples to saying, yes, it's sure going, it's surely going to be ours. Just as surely as the father's relationship to the son and formally agreeing to the son. I think that's interesting historically. I think it's interesting historically because sometimes people say, well, I can see what you're saying logically, but you know, I, I'm just a, I, I just deal with the text of scripture. And if you really deal with the text of scripture, you probably won't believe in the covenant of redemption. Um, actually, um, I think Beza is a good example of when we do our hard work, it's actually there like we didn't even realize it was there. John's gospel account. I'm going to go as fast as I can with you being able to follow, I hope, to, to get a flavor of this Jesus coming to earth, not, oh, whimsically in the sense of, I, uh, that's not the right word, um, you know, with a lot of uncertainty and why am I here and what am I here to do? And um, it's not that at all. It's given a work to do, sent to do a work for a particular purpose, to accomplish something. Well, that, that's what happens in a covenantal relationship. You're agreeing to do something. And if you do the something that's agreed upon, there will be great reward and if you don't do what you agreed to do, there will be great consequences. Well, we know it wouldn't go that way with the Father and the Son, but that's how it's used outside of the Bible. And you see that flavor in John. John chapter 4, then John chapter 5. In John four thirty four, Jesus said to them, My food, my, my very sustenance, my very existence, why am I here? My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Well, in the greater context of the Bible, I go, ah, see, there it is. That's the, that's the, reflecting the reality. John 5.30 is similar. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 5.36, halfway through the verse, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. 
5 to 43, I have come in my father's name. He's representing him. He's doing what he sent him to do. Again, if I'm reading that in the greater context, that's, that's covenantal kind of talk. It's packed kind of talk. How about John chapter 6? 6 says in verse 37, John 6, 37, all that the father gives me. I'll think about that in light of Ephesians 1. All that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And maybe just one more for good measure in John. And it's John chapter 10. I think I just told half a truth. Then we're going to do do John 17 as well. Otherwise known as a lie. It was a mistake. Okay, John chapter 10, verse 18. No one takes it from me. This is 1018. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Oh, he's charged to accomplish a certain work that he's agreed to do and it's going to happen. And then John 17, which is, if there's deep end of the pact and pool in John's gospel, this is it. In John chapter 17, we know it as the, the Lord's prayer, uh, the Lord's high priestly prayer. In verse 1, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorify you on earth. Aha, here it is. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. His mission is to save, right? His mission is to obey as the representative and to save through his obedience. And we know what he says the next day in John chapter 19, verse 30. What does he say on the cross? Different things, but you know what I'm looking for. It is finished. His work is finished. What he came to earth to do that had been pre-purposed, decreed before the foundation of the world. I did it. It's finished. It's fascinating. It's interesting. It's important. It's profound. Well, we might be here all day if we look at all of the passages. So here's a, here's a three for one passage. Hebrews chapter seven. Because in Hebrews chapter 7, it's quoting Psalm 110, and it's also referenced in Matthew 22. So if you go to Hebrews 7, you're going to see it, that it's there as well, but it actually is quoting Psalm 110. It would make sense that this is in the New Testament and the Old Testament because it actually is before the Testaments. Hebrews 7, verse 21. But this one was made a priest with an oath. You swear and take oaths in a covenantal context in the ancient world. 
by the one who said to him, quoting Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. (laughs) The fact that Yahweh swears an oath to do this points to the existence of a covenantal relationship. There it is. Putting the pieces together. Wow. And how about Isaiah 53? How about Isaiah 53 and 52, if you want to go ahead and go there? We're going to see it there as well. Remember, we are going to talk about why this matters so much. I have a top 10 list, so we might not get to it. But I was doing this in New York City, and I grew up watching David Letterman, and he did top 10 lists, so I figured we'd fit right in because we were down the street from... I won't do any stupid human tricks, though. I promise. Um, they did stupid pet tricks. We would try to do that at our house. What was my mom thinking, letting us watch all this stuff late at night? And then we would try to do the stupid pet tricks with our dog, April. Oh, you didn't come here to learn about that, though. Isaiah 53. Well, for the sake, oh, for the sake of time. Well, even think of this. Think of Isaiah 53, and we, we think of the servant theme that's throughout He's the suffering what? He's the suffering servant. You're speaking covenantally even if you don't know so because guess what? The servant role is important in a covenantal context. It's the covenant servant. The one who's going to do what they've been tasked, what they've agreed to do, sent to do. So even already, if we jump into the substitutionary work, sorry to be rude and jump in and jump ahead, but verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions, We know this is Christological because of the way the book of Acts uses it and other texts. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Wonderful. But why did this happen? Well, it happened for a lot of different reasons. But if you go to verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So we have father and son. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. A lot of things happening, but it is it was the will of the Lord to do this, to bring about redemption for sinners who would believe. It's not haphazard. It's not a random idea. It's a predetermined plan between father and son that results in salvation. Isaiah 53 goes on to say, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, covenant servant, there it is, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And then how about verse 12? Therefore... Oh, because he's victorious, because he does what he was sent to do, because he's a faithful covenant servant, because he's successful in upholding his obligation, if you will, in this covenantal relationship, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Notice that's, that's spoils of war talk. Right? He's victorious. And so he will, will enjoy. He will enjoy the, it's spoils of war talk. Exaltation. Reward. 
because of fidelity, because of faithfulness. The therefore there actually also underscores this idea. And then maybe one other Isaiah text, and I'm not lying this time. If we go to Isaiah 42, it helps us to kind of see what was leading up to this. Because like good Bible students, we want to read Isaiah 53 in light of the other chapters and things get, well, all of the chapters. But in chapter 42, we're, we're already sensing and savoring where it's going in this kind of father-son covenantal relationship to be applied by the Spirit. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant, and you know how to think of that, whom I uphold my chosen Maybe if we drop down to verse 6, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you, talking to the covenant servant, the chosen, I will give you as a covenant for the people. You are the covenant for the people, a light for the nations. See, we're not just making this stuff up. As long as you don't approach the topic with solo word searcha, and you look at the data, you go, oh, he, the servant is actually the covenant servant. He's on mission to do something. He's successful and highly exalted. He's rewarded, if you will, as the successful representative. And oh my, isn't it interesting to think that we benefit. We won't go there, but you could turn to Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8, which is quoted in Hebrews chapter 10, when Jesus says, I have come to do your will, O God. And before we go to that last question we're going to answer, insightful quotation from Charles Hodge. Charles Hodge, famous theology professor at Princeton, back when Princeton had a soul. And he says this, I've been to his grave, so I have the sacred anointing. I'm kidding. I have been to his grave, but nothing happened. Charles Hodge. When one person assigns a stipulated work to another person with the promise of a reward upon the condition of the performance of that work, there is a covenant. He goes on to say, such is the constant representation of the scriptures. I think he's right. Okay, last question. Number three, why does this matter to us? Why does this matter to us? Looks like we're going to get done. We're going to be in Acts next week, Lord willing. If you're just new to OBC, we've been studying the book of Acts. So I think we're going to be in Acts chapter 14 next Sunday. And the week after that, it'll be Acts 15. So that's normal. This is a little bit out of the ordinary. Um, doing some systematics, putting the pieces together today to see the bigger picture of things. Why does this matter? Well, 10 reasons. There are probably more, but let's do 10 of them. Some will be longer. Some will be shorter. Why does this actually matter? Well, the first reason it matters on my list is because it's amazing. You know, one thing Christians, I think, need to do more and more based upon things that are talked about in the Bible is to not look for the practical, to not look for the how-to. You know what? Don't just do something. Stand there. This is astounding to know the mystery of his will. The Apostle Paul falling over himself because he knows something. And it's 
quite a something. It's extraordinary that this matters because it's true. It matters because it's astounding, staggering to the mind. Matters, first and foremost, I want to say for that, the, the perfect vowing, right? A vow is something you do in a covenantal relationship. Weddings are very covenantal, even if we don't use that language. Uh, the Old Testament refers to marriage as a covenant, okay? So what do we do? We vow. We swear is what we're doing. We're, we're taking oaths. We might say, I promise, but that it's, it's covenantal. And we, we exchange uh, symbolic gifts in our culture, rings. That, that's pretty covenantal. Till death do us part and all the rest. They're great, wonderful, formal. It's not, my relationship with my wife is not casual. Okay. It's formal. It's, it's a formal agreement. Legally binding. Now it's also relational. Whew, I snuck that in. <laughs> but it's not casual. It's formal. The greatest vowing that has ever happened. Even the most faithful, sinful men and women who are most faithful, who've done the best job at keeping their vows. And we'd say, that's a, that's a great, great relationship, a model relationship. They should write books about their good relationship. That, that's all fine and great. But since we are all sinners, there's been a vowing like no other vowing ever. God should write a book about it. Oh, he did. It's the Bible, the whole thing. Everything that happens on planet Earth, in light of Ephesians 1, everything that happens falls under the banner of the Pactum Salutis. Wow. One theologian who knows this even better now because he's in heaven said, the full reality of God and God's work are not adequately grasped till the covenant of redemption occupies its proper place in our minds. Okay, it's another reason why this is important to us. I'll say this one with a smile on my face and it'll be short. It's important to us because without it, we would all be Scrooges. Because there would be no Christmas. Because there would be no incarnation. There would be no redemption. There would be none of the other things. Easter and the list goes on. But for shock value, the very reason Jesus was born is because of the covenant of redemption. Born at a certain time for a certain purpose. Yeah, we would all be Scrooges. A third reason, we're going to do 10 of these. The covenant of redemption matters because it's vital to your redemption. Think about it. The Trinitarian God created, read Genesis, The Trinitarian God recreates as well. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian because of the covenant of redemption, even if you don't know it. Pretty, pretty amazing. Pretty, pretty provocative. John chapter six, verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. You say, that's about salvation. That's right. And it is patently, thoroughly, pactum salutis, emphasizing. I'm a Christian because of the pactum. 
The foundation of all of our salvation is pre-Genesis. How about another reason? hope you're getting motivated. I hope you're getting ready for the last one because it's last on purpose. Number four, the covenant of redemption, covenant of redemption matters because it's vital to our assurance. It's vital to our assurance. What's the basis of your assurance if you're a Christian? Well, you could say, well, the basis of my assurance is I've come to believe in Jesus. Yep. True. The basis of my assurance is the empty tomb. Yep. Absolutely true. The basis of my assurance is the substitutionary atoning death of Jesus because it's a propitiatory sacrifice. Yep, true. I like your talk. I like the way you're thinking. Uh, my, my assurance is because of the perfect obedience of Christ because he didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill the law. Absolutely awesome. But the thing behind the thing behind the thing behind the thing behind the thing, because you wouldn't have any of those other things. The Holy Spirit wouldn't grant you saving faith. None of the other things would happen if it weren't before the foundation of the world. There was an intra-Trinitarian formal agreement we call the Pactum Salutis. Assurance. There's a lot of places to get assurance that are relevant and biblical and important. But you know what? It all goes back to that wonderful, mind-staggering reality. A fifth reason why this is important. The covenant of redemption matters because of the consummation. The consummation, the, the, the end, the end, actually, we're waiting, we're still waiting for the consummation. We're still waiting for the marriage supper of the lamb. We're still waiting for Jesus to make all wrongs right. All that is true. We're how long, O oh Lord, like the old Testament says, we're, we're waiting for the consummation. This is not it, but the consummation is actually talked about in Ephesians chapter one, which is actually talking about something that occurred before time began. The consummation is guaranteed because of the pactum. It says in Ephesians 1.10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. It's already built in that there's going to be this perfect unity and everything's going to be made right. And it was already guaranteed because of the pactum. Number six, the covenant of redemption matters because it is our theological heritage. It's our theological heritage. Matthew Barrett, in his book, Simply Trinity, the covenant of redemption is a fundamental pillar of reformed orthodoxy. So if you think, okay, if we checked our ancestral spiritual DNA and you sent away the saliva test, (laughs) there is no such thing, but you get the idea. If we look back at our history and Christians, there have always been Christians ever since Christianity started. But we would stand in the heritage of the Protestant Reformation uh, because we think they got the God, they recovered the gospel. They weren't the first ones to believe the gospel, but things had gotten uh, rather dark. And so they recovered justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based upon the ultimate authority of Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Uh, did I say grace alone? I think I did, but the, we're committed. That's our, that's our background. That's our history. We're Protestants. Uh, we're Reformed because we believe these things. Well, if you pay attention, if you send away that saliva sample, by and large, this is what Christians before us have believed it is our heritage so for me to say yeah you know what i i i'm i'm a protestant i'm reformed christian because i believe in the protestant reformation but i I don't buy the pactum thing it's kind of weird 
It's kind of strange. So, in substance, Belgic Confession, 1651. Heidelberg Catechism, 1563. Canons of Dort, 1619. Westminster Confession of Faith, 1646. And then even more explicitly, Savoy Declaration, 1658. Think John Owen. Uh, 1689, London Baptist Confession of Faith, explicit. So those are just confessionally speaking. What we've agreed to, that's what confession means. You want to go individuals, Charles Hodge, B.B. Warfield, Abraham Kuyper, Herman Bavink, Gerhardus Voss, even Jonathan Edwards, who has kind of a weird view of it, but he affirmed it too. And I have more names here. You know, one of the hardest names for me to pronounce is Johannes Ocalampadius. <laughs> 1482 to 1531. You, you see the concept in Luther. You see the concept in Calvin, Hermann Witsius. The list goes on and on. And I have more and more, but we need to move on. Number seven, the covenant of redemption matters because it affects our evangelism. It guides, it moderates in a good way. Our proclamation of the gospel. We saw this recently in Acts 13. That's why it was on my mind. In Acts 13, oh, they're persecuted. You might want to change the message and make it more friendly. Um, some are killed. Maybe, maybe we, we need to say something other than you must believe in Jesus or you're going to have to pay for your own sins. Um, no. What, what happens? In good times and in bad times, they preach Christ, they preach the gospel, they preach the good news to sinners. If you believe in Jesus, God will accept you because Jesus Christ is a perfect substitute and your sins must be paid for and everyone is a sinner and they preach and they preach and they preach and you say, how could they be so bold? How could they be so committed? How could they be so unflinching in their commitment? And and they still have joy, the pactum. Acts 13, 48, as many as were appointed to eternal life Believed. Man, they were passionate evangelists preaching the good news to sinners. But they didn't have to doctor it up. They didn't have to water it down because they knew there had been an appointment. We know when the appointment was before the foundation of the world. Super helpful. Super helpful. I was listening to a pastor of, of a mega church just recently, and, and he talked about things that would relate to denying the pactum. And I thought, it's no wonder you're such a salesperson in your proclamation of the gospel. It's manipulation. I want him to believe in the pactum and be passionate about the true gospel. I want that for us as well. Number eight, we're getting close. The covenant of redemption matters because of Bible interpretation. Because of Bible interpretation. We all want to be good Bible interpreters. We're probably all getting better and better, hopefully. But but how does it affect the way we interpret the Bible? It affects it actually in a really big way. Because even when I get to Genesis 1, 1, 1, I'm already thinking about something, aren't I? Of course I am. I'm already thinking about the Pactum Salutis. I'm already thinking about the pre-temporal, if we want to use fancy language, intra-Trinitarian. Oh, lunch is going to be fun today, Right? There won't be a quiz. I'm already thinking about that. So now all the things that happen, all the unfolding that happens, and and we see the sacrificial system, and we see the kings and the good kings and the bad kings, and we see the, the exile, and we see the redemption. 
We're not crazy for saying, oh, Israel was redeemed. Oh, Israel's called a son. Out of Egypt, I've called my son, Hosea 11. Oh, and then it's quoted in the New, in the New Testament. It's, and it's quoted regarding the ultimate son, Jesus. Ah, we've been seeing it unfolding all along because we know what actually happened before Genesis 1-1 ever happened. It affects the way we interpret the Bible in that sense. I've got lots of good quotes here, but for the sake of time, not going there. Oh, just a little bit. God, this is from Dennis Johnson. He sovereignly designed events, institutions, and individual leaders to provide foretastes of the feast, wetting Israel's appetite for the coming Savior and salvation. Israel's historical experiences of blessing and judgment, wealth and woe also prepared a rich symbolic vocabulary embedded in the dust and blood of real history, concepts and categories. Oh, I like this. Pre-designed to articulate the sufficiency and complexity of Jesus' saving work. Yeah. Oh, number nine, why does the pactum matter? It matters. Because it's attacked. It matters to me because some people say it's not true. One of the reasons I'm preaching this message. People people attack it. Unitarians don't like it because, well, they're Unitarians. <laughs> they're anti-Trinitarian. They're, they're anti-supernatural. Of course, they're not going to like it. Arminians don't like it. And I didn't say Armenians. Okay, Armenians are wonderful people. Arminians are followers of Jacobus Arminius who didn't believe in predestination. No wonder he didn't like this. Or no wonder his followers don't like this. Uh, denies particular redemption, that all of the elect will be saved because Christ died as their substitute and was raised for their substitute. It's no wonder Arminians don't like this doctrine. Uh, footnote, Jacobus Arminius believed in the covenant of redemption. Kind of weird that he did, but he actually did, inconsistently so. So don't be more of an Arminian than Jacobus Arminius. <laughs> Whatever you do. Biblicists don't like it because you can't find it with solo word searcha. My new favorite thing to say. Karl Barth didn't like it. Karl Barth didn't like it because he referred to it. He called it mythology. And most of you aren't reading Barth, but he's very influential a generation or two ago, especially with pastors and theologians. Um, he didn't like it because he was legal. And so he was a big enemy. So it's weird to me and interesting to watch people who deny it today, theologians, and I think, how influenced might you have been by Bart? Let's do the final one. The covenant of redemption matters because it induces praise. How could the Apostle Paul be so passionate in Ephesians chapter 1? That run-on inspired sentence. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In his... And I'll stop. But you get the idea. To the praise of His glorious grace. And he just goes on and on and on having a wonderful experience praising God. It's because of... The mystery of his will is known. It's because of the pactum salutis. It's because of the covenant of redemption. It's because of the great reality that he can hardly even contain himself praising God. Praising God because theology leads to praise if it's right theology. Think, think how it would have read if, if he didn't believe in the covenant of redemption. Well, it wouldn't even be there. 
mediocre, lame at best. Maybe one reason why sometimes our praise is mediocre, lame, because we haven't stopped to ponder and to consider the great drama of redemption on earth that actually has its origin not on earth. It has its origin in this chamber, if you will, in this unique setting in the council of eternity. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, this is what leads into Ephesians. Then you eventually get to chapter 4, and now now here's how you live your life. In chapter 5, here's how you live your life. Chapter 6, here's how you live your life. What really drives it? Knowing who God is and what he's done for you in Christ and that it didn't start even 2,000 years ago, even though 2,000 years ago is really important. Let's wrap up with this. Stephen Charnock, 17th century writer, goes on and on and on about this. But I'll just choose one select quotation. The consideration of this, the pactum salutis, will encourage our faintness, silence our fears, mystify our misgivings, and settle a staggering faith. Is a believer in a storm? Here is an anchor to hold him. Is he sinking? Here is a branch to catch. Is he pursued by spiritual enemies? Here is a refuge to fly to. Sin cannot so much oblige God's justice to punish as his oath to Christ obliges him to save a repenting and believing sinner. His love, here's my favorite part, his love cannot die as long as his faithfulness remains. Nor his peace with the soul perish as long as the covenant with his son endures. The covenant of redemption is to be pleaded by us as well as the merit of Christ's death because the merit of his death is founded upon this compact. In other words, covenant. We should pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your great grace shown to us even in knowing something of the mystery of your will. May it bolster our assurance if we're Christians. May it encourage our faithfulness to live for the glory of Christ if we're Christians. May it even draw those who are not Christians, having learned something about the great triune God who cannot be managed and cannot be stopped. May we be in awe of you, our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are thankful for your word, for your revelation. We're thankful to be able to know these things. We're thankful for men and women who've gone before us that can help us to understand these things. And we're thankful now that we're able to eat in remembrance of what Jesus did and drink in remembrance of what Jesus did, that his work is finished. It is done. He's been rewarded. He's been exalted. And he promises to take us with him in exaltation, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's accomplished as our great savior. In Jesus' name, amen.